This morning, if you turn in your Bibles once again to the first letter to the church at Corinth, in a continuation really of last week's message, which is being content, but beyond being content, I want to speak to you this morning about something that's just so heavy on my own personal heart, and that's our conscience. Very often, I think the reason that people struggle is a struggle against the very things that God has given us to help us. And chief among those is our conscience. And the word conscience in English really has a singular meaning, and it is to know with. To know with. It is that by which we actually validate knowledge. Knowledge becomes important to us in all things, but it's especially important when it's confirmed. Amen? Like right now, I want to know who's winning the USA-Spain basketball game. I'm just confessing, okay? I waited the whole Olympics for one game, and it has to be on now. So to know with, to get the knowledge of who's winning, now I could guess, couldn't I? I mean, we have LeBron and Kobe and, you know, I mean, I would think we're going to win. But when I left, it was tied. So my knowledge is, I actually don't know. So to know with, to have a good conscience about that, would be to seek all of the actual real confirmation I can get. So if I were to have my cell phone on and I could call Connie right now, I would know for sure who won, okay? Conscience is very important. Now, I'm using this silly example to illustrate something very, very, very important. Knowledge must be verified. And the way that people verify knowledge in the world is very different than the way we verify knowledge in the body of Christ. Amen? In the world, it's your mind, it's sight, it's hearing, it's counsel, it's Ouija boards, it's the Psychic Friends Network. You see, we confirm things through all kinds of different ways, but in the body of Christ, we have a very different way of confirming our conscience. It involves prayer. It involves the very voice of God. It involves the Word of God, and it involves the Holy Spirit of God to confirm the knowledge so that to know with is to hear from God. It's not just simply to have your friends agree with you. Amen? It's not to go to those stupid machines at the supermarket and you put your quarter in and out spits a piece of paper that says, you are going to be wealthy today. That confirms nothing. It provides no conscience to you. And so this morning as we continue this picture of contentment in marital relationships and then we move on to chapter 8, Christians and conscience. What are you using to know with? How do you know that you know? And is the Lord speaking to you this morning? Would you join me in prayer? Father God, what an important time this is as we study your word. And God, so many of us really have been spoken to by you, but we ignore our conscience. Others have yet to be convicted by the Spirit, and, Father, thereby uh, only know what the world has to say. And we pray this morning that you would just simply speak your truth into our lives. Lord, help us to not be legalistic and help us to not be libertine. Help us to not err in love without truth or truth without love, God. We, we want to have consciences that are guided by you and directed by you. We want to know properly how to live our lives, how to minister best to others. Lord, what to lay down and what to pick up. And so, God, we commit this time to you. Would you speak to us through the power of your marvelous word? It's in Jesus' precious name we pray these things. Amen. Verse 29, 1 Corinthians 7, and it says, Now let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, and again I turn to the New Living Translation that the time remains very short. Amen. Family of God, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that time is very short. It's very shorter now. Amen. 
It was short in Paul's day. It's shorter still today. Tomorrow it will yet be shorter. It's always short. It's speaking in relationship to those things which are eternal. Time is short. I don't know how much time we have left. The Lord may come for his church today. That would be a glorious way to spend the Sunday. Amen? Marriage, supper, of the Lamb. Let's get out of here. I would like that. I'd like to not have to do whatever it is I'm going to do tomorrow. I'd like to not have to do it if I can go to heaven. Time is short. We need to keep that in view because your conscience can actually be dictated to when you think you have a long period of time. How many of you have had friends or family perhaps say to you, well, when I get really old and I can't sin very much, I'll get saved then. You see, they have this long view of sin and long view of life and consequently the wrong view of their walks with the Lord. When you don't recognize that time is short and you think you have a lot of time to do whatever it is you're going to do, you can have a conscience that is not indicative of the shortness of time according to the things of the Lord. Time is very short. And so husbands should not let marriage be their major concern. You you, you see, for us, all of us should have the Lord's concerns. And I speak to you this morning if you're single. It is very difficult to maintain a Christ-centered view when all you're thinking about is who you're going to marry. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying if all you're focused on is who's going to be your wife or who's going to be your husband, doesn't matter which gender view you take, if that's your major concern, then you are going to be concerned abnormally about something that God is not quite so concerned about. Because he has all of time to work in, he knows what's best for you, and so this is a picture of how our consciences can be motivated by things that are very important to us right now, but are not necessarily the correct view of eternity. We call Calvary Chapel Bible College, Calvary Chapel Bridal College. Okay, we do. Ring by spring or your money back. It's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's one of those things, you know, everybody gets into the twenties and they're like, oh man, I'm, I'm so old. I don't, you know, and you ladies are like, if I don't have kids before I'm 22, I'll, I will miss the opportunity, you know. It, it is one of those things that we have to be careful because we become focused in on something and we begin to work towards that goal that may not necessarily be the Lord's priority for us right then and there. And so we miss out on what God wants to do in our lives. And so notice what he says next. He says, happiness or sadness or wealth should not keep anyone from doing God's work. You you see, it is not the temporal things that should guide our lives, should not be the things that give us the to know with knowledge. It isn't whether we do or do not have a spouse. It isn't whether we do or do not have wealth. It's not whether we're sad right now or circumstantially happy right now. It's what is the Lord doing actively in our lives at this point in time. And how do I best say, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want. That's what brings happiness into our lives ultimately and joy into our lives ultimately. Because I've met people who are married that are miserable. I have met people who are wealthy that are miserable. I have met people who claim to be happy who are actually miserable. Why? Because they don't have an eternal perspective. They have a temporal perspective. And maybe they're looking towards trying to maintain that wealth. How many people have been ill-guided and pushed into irrelevance in the body of Christ trying to hang on to an empire. I have met many. And again, nothing wrong with being wealthy. And as a matter of fact, it's important that that wealth be used for the kingdom. And so there's a great place for wealth in the body of Christ. But not if it's how you get your conscience. Not if it's what motivates you to get up every day. If your goal is to get up and simply make money and not please Christ, you've missed part of what God wants to do in your life. And so we have to be careful, family of God. I want my to know with well with the Lord. 
goes on in verse 31, for those in frequent contact with the things of the world should make good use of them without becoming attached to them, for this world and all it contains will pass away. Amen. Circle that. Underline it. Keep it in perspective. Because we all have frequent contact with the things of the world. He might as well have said, and you all, because you have frequent contact with the things of the world, be really careful that the things of the world don't become the things that gives you a conscience. Because your conscience can be tainted by the things of the world. You can eventually be ruled by the things of the world and overly concerned with the things of the world, so that ultimately you have no value to God whatsoever. You're so absorbed in the things of the world that when God comes calling upon your life, you can't go. Be careful not to become attached to them, because there's not a thing you have on this earth you're taking with you. Amen? None of it. The one with the most toys wins. Zip. Nada. Nothing. It doesn't do you a bit of good. Now, let me be very careful. I I am not telling you that if you've been blessed and you have wonderful things that you should despise them. That's not what's being said here. I'm not telling you to go sell all that you have and give to the poor. Jesus commanded that in a very specific instance. Okay, But what I am saying to you is make sure that your possessions don't possess you. That those possessions are in the hands of the Lord. And whatever He wants for them, and with them, and through them, and to them, He still maintains control of that which is His. You don't own a thing, and neither do I. My house belongs to the Lord. My cards belong to the Lord. My bank account is God's bank account. He's given me those things and us those things so that we can use them for His glory. And part of His glory is blessing you. God loves to bless you, so don't despise His blessings. If He's given you abundance, be joyful in that abundance. But notice how we started this, whether much or little. Enjoy it, but use it for the kingdom. And if you have little right now, then you need to be asking God, why do I have little? And say, Lord, make me the way you want me to be. And let my conscience be clear. Because sometimes the reason people have little is because they're not doing much. Sometimes the reason people have little is because of horrible circumstances. Maybe even the enemy's gotten into that, that part of your life. But don't just automatically assume that because you have one or the other, that God's trying to speak to you just simply through those things, because then you become guided by circumstances. And if you're just guided by circumstances, and you're not influenced by the Word of God through prayer, by God's voice Himself and the Holy Spirit, through the counsel of people who love the Lord, if you're just being guided by stuff, you're going to be running all over the place like a chicken with your head cut off. Amen? That's what happens. I, I've had people tell me, well, you know, the Lord's book. I'll ask them, how did the Lord speak to you? They won't use the word. They won't use prayer. They won't use godly counsel. They say, well, I saw the Hawaiian Islands in the clouds. I'm supposed to go to Hawaii. <laughs> Do you have any money in your bank? No, but I'm supposed to go to Hawaii. God's calling me. He showed me the Hawaiian Islands in the clouds. Satan can blow some clouds around, okay? He can't make any. God handles that. But Satan can manipulate things here on earth and very often gives you a wrong picture of circumstances so that you'll rely on just the circumstances and thereby make horrible decisions. And your conscience is not clear. And you know the truth. And all of a sudden you're going, oh man, I don't know how I got here. Well, actually, yes, we do. If you walk with the Lord for any length of period of time, God's been speaking to you. And he's going, that's not me. No, seriously, don't go to Hawaii. It's not going to be good just because you saw some clouds. Verse 32, and in everything you do, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. Amen. 
What a beautiful applicational piece of scripture that we can use right now in the here and now. Where, however you are in everything you do, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. God has not saved you, hear me well, to put you right back into bondage to life. Amen? He hasn't saved you to make you in bondage to the things of this world. And yes, we have to have jobs, and yes, we have to pay bills, and yes, we even need to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But not so much so that we lose our joy, and not so much so that we lose our confidence in the Lord, and not so much so that we lose the glory of the Lord, and we lose the blessings of the Lord. See, very often, all of a sudden, things start to become the new master. Everything you do, I want you to be free from the concerns. Notice it doesn't say bondage to the concerns of life. And I'm not trivializing anything. Sometimes it's tough to make that mortgage payment. Sometimes it's tough to make those school payments. Sometimes it's tough to pay that medical bill. I recognize and freely acknowledge that, and so does God. But He hasn't set us free to put us into bondage. And if we feel like we're in bondage, then perhaps we need to look at how we're understanding what God is doing and give him opportunity to adjust our lifestyle. Give him opportunity to tell us what needs to go and what needs to stay. Sometimes we're so set on the path that we believe we're supposed to take that we're not even open to God changing it. So I'm not going to do that. I mean, after all, I've worked 30 years to get where I am today. I've worked 40 years to get where I am today. And God's saying, maybe, well, I'd like to take you someplace new. But you're so attached to everything that's on this earth that the concerns of life have swallowed you up. And to an unmarried man... He can spend his time doing the Lord's work. And so he goes back to the, the analogy of married life, thinking how to please him. But to the married man, he can't do that so well. I love the way the New Living says that. It's just not simply not as easy. There are other concerns that you have as a married man, other concerns you have as a married woman. And again, Paul's not anti-marriage. He's very pro-marriage. He is the most very pro-marriage author of the New Testament, even more so than Jesus. So for those of you thinking Paul is, you know, just hates women or something, that's absolutely absurd. Or thinking that he was a misogynistic, you know, woman hater that wants to take away women's rights. That is idiotic. It's not true. But what he is saying is that marriage at times brings difficulty into our lives that we would not have as single people. That truth is true for everything in life. Every decision you make, every purchase you make, everything that you do in life ultimately brings circumstances into your life that God either has to negotiate for His good or has to sit there and allow you to suffer the consequences of if they're evil. And so everything has that potential. And so he's saying in the biggest decision that most of us will make in our lifetime, apart from accepting Jesus Christ, don't you think God wants to be in on that decision? Okay, The number one decision that you will make, generally speaking, as a human being, apart from accepting Jesus Christ as Lord, is who you're going to marry. You need to make sure that that fits God's plan. Not just because he's tall and handsome. Not because she's beautiful. Not because he's got money or doesn't have money. It shouldn't be made on the basis of externals, but upon internals. The things of the Lord. I can't tell you how many miserable people I know that married outside of God's will. And their lives are spent trying to endure marriage. That is not God's plan. Marriage is the most wonderful human institution that God ever allowed on this earth. But it also brings a set of conditions and circumstances into your life that you wouldn't have if you were single. That's all he's saying. Don't read anything into it. 
He has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And in the same way, a woman who is no longer married nor has never been married can devote more time to the Lord in body and spirit, while the married woman must be concerned about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. It's super simple, folks. Please don't read anything into that passage. It's simply saying, that we need to be concerned about the Lord first. Not about whether you are or are not married. That's why he's already said, don't be overly concerned for that person, because God knows exactly who that person is. That's why if you come to me and you say, well, what do you think about dating? I will tell you it's one of the most dangerous things that we do in America because it can lead to circumstances and situations that very often put you into a position to no longer hear from the Spirit of God, but rather hear from your flesh. Be very careful, because pretty soon you think you're in love. Pretty soon, all of a sudden, you say, wow, you know, I just don't think I can live without him or her, and you're 14. Tell me that's the Lord and prove it to me and I'll, I'll, I'll be a believer. But I'm telling you, 14 and 15 year olds don't have a clue about what God wants for their life. Okay, they don't. Period. So don't disrespect my judgment and come to me and say, well, my daughter or my son is, is just different. No, they're flesh just like everybody else. And we need, as parents, to stand up to our society and say, not on my watch. Unless you want them making really bad decisions and being affected by their circumstance. Because they're not ready for marriage at 14 and 15 years old. And if they date the same person for two, three, four years, where do you think it's going to go? Paul's being very rational here. Now, did what I just say preclude your children from being able to go out with members of the opposite sex? Absolutely not. But don't fall into the world's dating method, which is basically pre-marriage. Amen? Be honest. Paul's giving very strong instruction here to us. We need to hear it. We need to do it. Because if we don't, we suffer the consequences. Why do you think so many marriages fail, family of God? Because we have the wrong view of marriage. We're not looking to please the Lord. We're looking to please ourselves. And because we look to please ourselves, we end up out of God's will. We marry somebody we're not supposed to marry. And all of a sudden, it isn't so good. That's what it says. I say this for your benefit, verse 35 says, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote good order and, notice this, pretty, pretty specific, unhindered devotion to the Lord. You can't give unhindered devotion to the Lord when you're entangled with the things of the world. You can't give unhindered devotion to the Lord when you're entangled with the things of the world. It's not a hard concept. It's a very easy concept to understand. That's why all of these sin issues that have been talked about already now come into full view. So if you're a drunkard, entangled with the world. You're a drug abuser, entangled with the world. You're involved in an inappropriate relationship at too young an age, tangled with the world. You get the picture? How entangled with the world are you? If you're entangled with the world, your life gets very, very, very hard And it becomes very hard to discern the will of the Lord. Because you got all these circumstances going on that are speaking to you and yelling at you. Marry him. Marry her. Go ahead. You know, you're almost married anyway. Amen? Be real about these things. We all think we're going to be the exception to the rule. If we're honest, we think that way. But we're not going to be the exception to the rule. And the word of God specifically is speaking to us. Be careful about which liberties you take. Because you know what? Dating is not necessarily a sin. But oh, how quickly you can get entangled with the world. Amen? So it is not so much a sin as it is unwise. Your to know with gets damaged. 
That's why we as parents need to have a conscience about the things that we allow our children to do because they are in that process of gaining their own conscience. Amen? So you need to speak up and say, I really don't think that's wise, son. I really don't believe that's God's will for you. We do have an opinion, and we are part of that which is the conscience of God speaking truth into other people's lives. We want unhindered devotion. Verse 36, for if anyone thinks he's acting inappropriately or improperly towards a virgin that he is engaged to, if she's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, then he should do what he wants. He's not sinning. He's making a very, very clear statement here. God understands human biology. God understands chronology. Okay, He knows when we're kind of getting into those places in our lives. He gets all of that. He's not anti-marriage. He's not anti-you having relationships. He is anti-you making mistakes. He's, he's anti-you doing the wrong thing for a seemingly good reason. Amen? That's the issue. How many people have made bad decisions for good reasons? I'm getting older. I'm past the, King James uses the flower of her youth. She's 27. (laughs) Nearly dead. And I'm trying to lighten this up because it should be humorous to you. It's like, oh yeah, that's right, I think that way. You know, man, I I had to put up with, you know, a short temper three times now. And all of a sudden you go make a decision because your spouse said something that maybe wasn't the kindest way to say it. And you're like, oh, well, I'm not going to do that again. How many times do we forgive? Scripture says 70 times 7. Uses the Greek word myriads, which means infinitely. But because we don't want to hear that anymore, because we know we deserve better, and God would even agree with you, you do, but because you're married, and because that marriage is for life, you now have to deal with that difficulty. It's on you. So make sure you're choosing wisely and don't do it simply because you're 28 years old. Don't do it because your friends are getting married. Don't do it because you're the only one left who hasn't slept with someone. How many times do we end up in that situation where we adopt the world's standards And we forget that God is able, and through Him we are more than conquerors. They should get married, but the man who settled the matter in his own mind is under no compulsion, but is under the control of his own will, and has made up his mind not to marry the virgin. This man also does the right thing. Notice how the focus is on the conscience. What did God say? How did God speak? Before we get one minute into this any further, remember this, God's able to speak to you, and he wants you to know. The problem is sometimes we don't like what God's saying. I don't want his answer no. He's he's yelling no at us, and we're going, well, that could mean yes, huh? Or we get 97 no's, and we get three yeses, and well, you know, the yeses are more important. I mean, after all, God wants me to be happy. Now, God wants you to have joy. There's not a single verse in Scripture that God declares circumstantial happiness for everyone all the time. Amen? As a matter of fact, he says just the opposite. You're going to have some trials. You're going to have some tribulation. You're going to go through stuff you don't like. How many people are guided by happiness? I just want world peace. We all want world peace. The fact of the matter is, if you read your Bible, you're going to know that in the last days... There's going to be war and rumors of war and difficulty. And men, when, men will become haters of God. And we've got, that's the world we live in. So don't try and make it into something different so that your conscience will be okay. 
Let God use his word and use prayer and use his very voice and use those things which he's given you, the power of the Holy Spirit to discern what is his perfect will. And so the person, it says in verse 38, who marries does well. And the person who doesn't marry does even better. And make sure that you understand what's being said here. It's hard to be single. That's why it says even better. It's harder in our generation to be single. It is a very specific calling upon someone's life to be single and and give your life fully in devotion to the Lord. I think that is a very narrow bandwidth of calling, and very few people are actually in that group. For the vast majority of humankind, married life is the norm. Why? Because a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. It's for life. Anybody that tries to tell you that marriage in the Bible is not taught as being for life needs to read this verse. It applies both ways. It happens to be speaking from the female gender first. Doesn't mean it's exclusive. It applies both ways. Marriage is for life as long as you both shall live. A hundred percent of the time. That means in sickness and in health, good, bad, richer, poorer, antagonistic, and not. When you agree and when you disagree, there is no biblical mandate for divorce, ever. It's not there. There are two allowances for divorce. Neither are mandates. One is obviously sexual sin. The other is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Those are simply allowances. They are not God's perfect will. Don't ever lose sight of that. Because if you lose sight of that truth, all of a sudden marriage is for however long your spouse is nice to you. However long your spouse provides you the material blessings that you think you ought to have. However long your spouse is beautiful or handsome, or however long you live in the house that you think you ought to be in, or however long they put up with your parents, or however long whatever happens. Do you get the point? From God's perspective, marriage is for life. And it endures hardship. It endures pain. It gets through difficulty. That's why he's spent all this time making the point, it's not easy to be married has its own set of circumstances. I personally, and I think most people who have been married for a while, would not trade it for anything in life. I would trade nothing for my marriage to my wife, Connie. Nothing. Give me the world, I'll take her. Thank you, Jesus. So important on a level above everything else, other than my own personal walk with the Lord. She's next. But even in that, she's a woman. I'm a man. I like meat. She likes veggies. It's it's not hard to understand, folks. She has her opinions. I have mine. She has her likes. I have mine. I happen to love chili dogs. Her not so much. You get the picture. And you can extrapolate that out to virtually anything in life. long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's free to marry if anyone wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. Underline that. He or she, if you are a Christian, must belong to the Lord. Please, in Jesus' name, do not make the mistake of looking at your children and giving them the wink and the nod. Well, they're a pre-Christian. Scripture clearly states believers are not to be married to unbelievers. We are not to be unequally yoked. Is there grace if you get into that situation? Of course. Is the mercy of the Lord still available to his children? Absolutely. But we are to be thinking about and entertaining marriage only to other believers if you yourself are saved. Please don't change that truth, for in doing so, you are likely going to ruin someone's life. 
I can't tell you how many, especially women, I have talked to that knowingly married an unbelieving guy thinking that she would be the instrument of change in his life and he would eventually come to Christ. Only to live long enough to know that that didn't happen and go through a bitter, horrific divorce because of it. No man can have two masters. So imagine that marriage is a picture of the unity that we have in Christ. And you marry someone whose God is not the Lord, but whose God is the world, and you serve the Lord, how much trouble do you think you're going to get into? Again, it's not hard. We make it hard because we want it to say something else. The fact of the matter is it doesn't say something else ever. As children of God, we are to marry Christians, period. Now, in grace... You can do anything you want. You, you want to go exercise your liberty? We're going to get to that next. But you will suffer the consequences for it, and it won't be good. And God, knowing that it's not going to be good, is saying, don't do that. Because you'll bring untold problems into your life. But in my opinion, it would be better if he or she did not marry again, speaking, of course, of that, that person who was previously married. And I think I'm giving God's counsel from God's spirit when I say this. In other words, he's saying, it's better to be unmarried than to marry someone who doesn't know the Lord. It is better to be unmarried than to simply marry someone who doesn't know the Lord. That's tough, isn't it? But it's what scripture plainly says. Your to know with has been affected. Your conscience now has new discerning abilities. Please don't ignore it. Please don't ignore it. He goes on now as we start chapter 8. And he switches up really not so much the context of what's being talked about, but rather the example. Because here's why. How many of you have thought, well, I don't know if I should um, buy stock, because isn't the stock market just kind of legalized gambling? How many of you have concerned yourself with shopping at Home Depot? How many have concerned yourself with shopping at Target? Uh, how many of you have concerned yourself with going to Disneyland because they openly hire homosexuals? How many of you have chosen to not go to restaurants and just absolutely blasted other people for going there because they serve alcohol? How many of you have thought through all of these things and go, you know what, I'm just gonna, you know, gonna, I'm gonna do, you know, all these crazy, bizarre things and I'm gonna withdraw from the world? Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture also doesn't teach that we should take our truth and divest it of love. Truth and love must go together. And you cannot just have the truth without love, and you also cannot just have love without the truth. They are both wrong. On one side, truth without love is legalism. Love without truth, is libertinism. Scripture teaches the balance between those two places. And so now he begins to say in verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning the things offered to idols. Now this would have been a huge problem in Corinth. Now you're probably sitting there thinking, man, we don't have any, you know, temples in Running Springs that I'm aware of that, you know, sell, you know, gnarly sacrificed meat anywhere. That, that's true. We don't. But we sure do have the God of this age alive and well in Running Springs. We, we absolutely have the God of this age alive and well in this country. And I just named a whole bunch of things to you. Home Depot was founded by a Christian, by the way. And he's absolutely enraged about the hiring policies and the very pro-gay things that Home Depot is doing. Like going to gay fairs and having their little two guys acting as a family and doing crafts with kids. They do that. That's, this is where conscience comes in, folks. You see, what he's going to talk about now is how do we do these things in love? Because there may not be an exact 
answer in every single situation that applies to absolutely every person. God's given you individual consciences which provide you with the conviction of the Holy Spirit that in a given situation, because you are free in Christ, that you can hear directly from the Lord yourself. I do not have to make an edict from this pulpit as to whether you can shop at Home Depot, and I won't. Now, if I can buy something at Lowe's that Home Depot also has, I'm probably going to do that. If I can go to Chick-fil-A instead of Carl's Jr., I'm probably going to do that. I have a conscience that is guided by the Lord. And you need to listen, listen to that conscience, that to know with. Notice how it begins. We know that we all have knowledge. He's making a very simple statement. You're saved. You're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know that there's only one God. You understand completely that those things that, that you now uh, are, are being guided with are really heavenly things as opposed to the earthly things. We all have some form of knowledge when you get saved. There's an instantaneous thing that happens, and all of a sudden you realize, man, i got to stop selling crack. I need to get out of that relationship. This isn't working. You know, I gotta give up my job as a loan shark. I just, I can't do these things anymore. There's an instantaneous conviction of many things. But there is not an instantaneous conviction of all things. Because not all things have an exacting answer laid out in scripture that is universal to all of mankind. And so God gives you a conscience so that in those individual circumstances where you must make the decision for yourself and for your family, you can hear directly from God. You don't need to call Pastor Jeff and go, well, should I buy this thing that's on sale at Home Depot? Please don't call me. I don't want to know. God can speak to you about whether you need to boycott Home Depot or not. And if your conscience says yes, because you are convicted in the spirit that you are sinning against God by shopping there, then in Jesus' name, don't shop there. But if you're not convicted of those things, and you believe that God is able, and through him you're more than conquerors, and in that situation there may be no other option and that one item that you need is at Home Depot, you also can live that truth and that reality as your conscience speaks to you through guidance by the Lord. It's why you will not ever get me to promote the whole, you know, we should boycott this or we should boycott that. That's why you will never hear me say, well, just stop paying taxes. Do I like to waste my tax money and see it go towards things that are not biblical? I hate doing that. It drives me crazy, and I am politically active enough to tell you I will do everything I can to see to it that that ends. But I can also tell you that if we all withdraw from the world, we'll have no impact to salt and light in this country. So on one side, if your personal conviction is this or this, Let your conscience be your guide. Notice what goes on to say now as we finish verse 1. And we'll end with verse 1, and then we'll pick this up in our next study. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, is what you can actually write there in your margin. Knowledge fills you full of gassy goodness. It is what happens when you ferment. It's what happens when, like we did a couple of days ago, Connie decided that we would have Belgian waffles and bacon. I love bacon. And Belgian waffles take yeast, if you know anything about Belgian waffles. And when you make Belgian waffles and you... You make the batter ahead of time and they just become so wonderfully fluffy because they're full of gas. There's little air pockets all throughout your Belgian waffles. It's what makes them fluffy and wonderful. 
It's part of the process of puffing up. The same is true for any kind of bread. That's why sparkling water is more refreshing than flat water because it's got the little bubbles in it and they tickle your taste buds and your tongue. You see, that's what that does. Knowledge puffs up. If you just have knowledge, then you get really inflated with yourself, is what Paul's saying here. If you you have all this knowledge, well, all of a sudden you become the legalistic authority on absolutely everything. You're just all swollen. I can't get any more knowledge in here. I am so full of, oh, that's right, myself. And you kind of wander around, just kind of jiggling from side to side because of all your wonderful knowledge. That's why we call people fatheads. That's why we have those derogatory marks about people who overtly want to tell you they know more than you do. You see, knowledge does that if it's by itself. If knowledge exists in a vacuum, it's actually dangerous. Knowledge that's not exercised in love becomes a weapon in the hand of that person that wields it. And love without knowledge becomes hypocritical, does it not? And so you can see the balance of these two things. God wants us to have knowledge, but he does not want that knowledge divested of love. Because if I take my knowledge and I use it unlovingly, it's just as destructive as the lack of truth. Do you get the picture? Both things are wrong. And see, our conscience needs to be pure. And if my conscience is going to be pure, my conscience must have equal parts of knowledge and love. And at the end of the day, if you have to have a tiebreaker, okay, we're in the Olympics right now. Amen? Don't you hate the tiebreaker things? It's like their mother's uncle's aunt's cousin's best friend was once an Albanian, and that's the tiebreaker or whatever. You know, there's all these obscure rules. Let me help you with the rule of the tiebreaker in the kingdom of God with your conscience. Apply love. Knowledge always is secondary to love. How do we know that? The plain statement of John. God is love. So at the end of the day, your knowledge should always be secondary to love, but you also should not ever throw out your knowledge. Because then it becomes hypocritical. Because ultimately I can look at the Word of God and go, well, I'm just being loving, so you just go ahead and keep on doing that. No, you're not loving when you tell people to do things that get them in trouble. You're not loving when you encourage them to take up behaviors that are sin. You are not loving when you get your kids involved in a behavior that will lead them to marry someone they shouldn't marry. Do you understand? You see, the loving thing to do would be to take that knowledge and say, I need to be able to communicate this to my children so that they understand above all else, God loves them and I love them. And that I want the very best for them. And the reason I'm bringing this knowledge to light is because of the love. You see, a lot of times it's a lot easier to just get mad, isn't it? We, we have no problem hating sin. We have problem loving sinners. Amen? Most of us have no problem hating sin. We just don't love sinners like Jesus loves sinners. Boy, am I glad he didn't do that to me. Because he's still loving on a wretched sinner. And I have a lot of knowledge. One of the things that I am most ashamed of in my time in ministry is the amount of times I have taken out the Word of God and used it as a baseball bat. It's like, here, bam! Quit that sinning. Legalism does that. The authority of God's Word can speak that harsh truth. But once you speak that truth, you need to back it up with love. You must defer to love. When we do that, the conscience works properly. When we do that, the conscience works properly. 
The conscience will not work properly if you take truth out of it or if you take love out of it. And if you're going to err in Jesus' name, err on the side of love. Okay, so what? There's that issue in that person's life. Err on the side of love. That's why when somebody comes to me, I'm not going to that family gathering, and I ask him why. Well, you know, he uses swear words. So you think he's going to hear the truth by you just simply getting out of his life? Do you, do you think that that person is going to feel the love of God and experience the love of God if all you do is criticize? You see, we must stand for the truth. You can make this, you know, man, I, I, please don't use that language around me. I love you, but that's really harsh on me. It's harsh on my children. I don't want my children to hear those things. But you do it in love. And all of a sudden that person understands your tenacity for the things of God in a very different way. It's not because you hate them. It's because you love them. It's because you care for them. It's because you care for your children. All of a sudden that love becomes the dish upon which you serve the law. That's why when you go to a nice restaurant, by the way, they don't serve your meal on a napkin. Here. You get the nice fine china. Looks beautiful. Man, I want that. We'll pick up on this next time. Let your conscience, your to know with, be guided by the Spirit of God. And if you don't to know with, defer to love. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, just help each one of us. Lord, in these areas, God, now we know the truth of some of these issues. And, and Father, we're, we're now subject to that information. But God, help us to never just simply take that information and, and beat one another with it. Lord, help us to always defer to love. Lord, to fall back on that position of grace and mercy and kindness and tenderness and gentleness and meekness, those things which describe your character that ought to be found in us. And so, God, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for that conscience that we have that, Lord, just enables us to hear your voice. Help us to to live lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to love in ways that honor you. Lord, help us to stand for truth that bespeaks your character. Lord, help us to speak that truth in a way that's loving and kind and tender and gentle. And God, if we ever get out of, out of whack, Lord, thank you for being kind in bumping us back into that middle. Lord, help us, those of us that maybe are bent towards legalism, Lord, help us to, to, to not be unloving. And those of us that are bent towards being libertine. God, help us to remember that your love is always the love of truth. And God, we bless you. We thank you. We love you. And thank you for loving us with all of our faults, with all of our weaknesses. We ask these things in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen.